Professor Ian Hickey is the co-director of the University of Sydney's Brain and Mind Centre. He was the uh, he was an inaugural commissioner on Australia's National Mental Health Commission from 2012 to 2018, overseeing enhanced accountability for mental health reform and suicide prevention. He is an internationally renowned researcher in clinical psychiatry with particular reference to medical aspects of common mood disorders, depression and bipolar disorder in young people, early intervention and the use of new and emerging technologies regarding uh, and suicide prevention. When I chatted with Ian, he had just come back from his summer holidays. Uh, he was looking tanned and he was in fantastic form. We talked about so many interesting things but really we focused on the idea of connection and how important connection is for our well-being and there is a like my personal highlight is Ian talking about how you how we navigate between looking after the personal and looking after the collective and he drops so many very important gems and very useful gems that we can all apply or try to apply to our lives Dr. Ian Hickey, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a million for coming on. It's a pleasure to be here, Jim. You're sporting a lovely tan. Yes. On this side of the world, I've just crawled back into my office after a long summer break. And of course, we in Australia are rather fortunate at the moment that our COVID world's a little easier to live in than many others. You got to do a little bit of local traveling, I guess, in the region. I'm very fortunate that I have a beach house up the coast from Sydney and you can disappear into the surf and the great Australian tradition, you can spend it with everyone else. No one owns a beach in Australia. Everybody goes to the beach. Everyone can share. Everyone can enjoy being outside in a very physical world that we're in. And for those who don't know, sunshine is actually bright for your mood. And my grandfather, who was Irish, said when he arrived, he was (laughs) never going home. He took himself (laughs) to the beach. Every day of his 90 years, he arrived <laughs> and was generally a good deal happier in the afternoon having been to the beach. Absolutely. Yeah, you don't need to tell any Irish person that sun is good for them, honestly. Um, just to begin, in for someone who is not familiar with your work, or how, how would you introduce yourself and, and your work over the last few decades? Well, technically... I'm a clinical psychiatrist by training, so I'm a mental health professional. And a lot of my work clinically is with people with mood disorders, with depression, with manic depressive illness, bipolar disorder, and other common issues. As a researcher, I've tried my hand at just about everything, brain imaging, genetics, social determinants, testing new therapies, light therapy, circadian body clock therapies. But a lot of my life is actually as a public advocate in the, in the public discussion, what the hell is mental health and well-being and how is it achieved, not just individually, but as a public health issue for all of us? You know, it's basically an all-in. You've got to yeah. be well together if you're going to be well as an individual. And just before say, do you think that before, unfortunately, we were looking at it about mental health quite sectionally? and we didn't understand the holistic nature of it. Yeah, I think there are a lot of issues. Uh, we can blame the philosophers, the, the René Descartes and such people who put the mind over in one place, and I think religiously the spirit over in another, 
and then put the physiology of the body in the sort of animal world, the sort of non-religious, non-cognitive period, put it over there somewhere and split it up. And, you know, humans are animals and they are social animals that exist in a real world. And when they're unwell, the whole of them is unwell. So you're not psychologically unwell in some other place in your spirit or in your mind that is not connected, that is not intrinsically part of the whole. Same thing, the body itself doesn't exist as a physical thing in isolation from its social context. And really importantly, humans are social animals. Now, big message here, we don't survive on our own. We're actually quite fragile compared with the rest of the world. But we've been very successful when we survive in functional social groups together. So there's a holistic issue of mind and body, or mind in my world, mind and brain, if you like, the whole physiology of who you are. But that physiology itself is only in balance or in well-being when it's in some sort of equilibrium with the social world Mm. in which it operates, family, kin, society, et cetera, and functioning well. I say this particularly in the COVID era. You can see what happens when it goes wrong. It's very hard to survive. And in a psychological sense, in a mental health sense, the same thing. Humans thrive psychologically when their group that they are part of is thriving Mm. and many, many struggle when that breaks down for one set of reasons or another. So the holistic thing. Now, I think that is very important, Jim, because I think, unfortunately, now when I was young, I'm not so young. You can actually see me. I'm not as young as I used to be. When I was young, I was once a professor of community psychiatry, what used to be called a social psychiatrist, very fashionable 1970s hippie-type job, social psychiatrist. But a lot of stuff happened in the 80s and 90s. One, of course, around brain imaging and genetics. We had a capacity to go inside our heads in a way that we didn't. But another really in cognitive psychology, to entirely get lost in about how we think about ourselves in isolation and trying to make ourselves right in our own head alone. So a lot of focus on the intrapsychic world of the individual and I think out of balance with both its own physiology, the body and the world, the physical world that it's in, but also out of balance with the wider society within within which we operate. Absolutely. Like- when I, I first heard you speak about this topic uh, in the recent event you hosted with uh, the Dalai Lama on collective and well-being and resilience, you mentioned this before, and it, I I had heard it like not in great depth. The idea that we really need um, the people around us to be doing well for our own well-being and vice versa, and that you criticised the idea of individual well-being. Uh, like very very much the American idea of you, you look after yourself, these are the things that you do and you will feel better. Um, I wanted to, yeah, I guess I wanted to, uh, sorry, I just wanted to ask um, one of the key issues that, I, that I've come across is in, in society we see like once I'm okay, it's okay. The kind of individualization of uh, human goals and well-being leading to like a weakening sense of community. And I guess, yeah, if, if you could speak further on this, on how this, this disconnection, while we believe it is better for us, we're looking after our personal and individual needs, it's actually hurting us because we have this maybe unconscious need to, for the people around us to be doing well So also. Yeah, look, so I think what has happened um, 
in the global world, and particularly over the last 30 or 40 years, this pursuit of individual wellness and mm-hmm. length of life, the total preoccupation with being personally, physically fit mm-hmm. and surviving, a ferociously individualistic kind of culture mm-hmm. in a particular way. And then what has come on the back of that is commercialization of that, selling it to you, okay? Selling you everything from your personal trainer in your gym and your diet and you know, your suntan and your job and there's some individual success, and a fiercely individualistic uh, ethos, which can be marketed around the world and sold around the world and promoted on Instagram and how you look and maybe, you know, as you, you know, I mean, in the Instagram age, down to just the physical appearance of you and then in the sort of cosmetic world, how you rearrange even how you look, you know, so to be. I see these hilarious magazines when I used to travel in the United States of, you know, 70 and 80-year-old sort of models pretending on how you could look. I think they look terrible. But, you know, somehow you've got to look great when you're 80, you know, no wrinkles on your face, no whatever else. And then somehow on the inside you'll be psychologically well, you know, this sort of pursuit of a kind of almost Statue of David kind of idea as you age as the sort of glorified godlike individual. And it's very easily marketed and we are very susceptible. We're all very susceptible to that. Now, that's in a sort of gross kind of way. In the psychological world, as, as psychological awareness has grown, an awareness that we do need to attend to our inner mental life in the same way that we now attend to our physical health, if you like, that has tended to get marketed as individual resilience and individual health and well-being as if you can be well on the inside, in isolation. Now, in health, as demonstrated by the COVID crisis pandemic, is complete nonsense in physical health. You can't be physically healthy, independent of the environment in which you exist. You actually depend on a functioning physical environment to be well, for nutrition, for sunlight, for day and night, and for survival in the face of things like a pandemic. Same is true. Humans are social animals. Humans' great success from an evolution point of view is that at a group level, our capacity to care for each other our empathy for each other, our capacity to support children through their development, to protect those who are sick and unwell at any particular time, therefore for us all to survive, depends on our emotional connection between us. And we feel well, we feel at our most productive, our most connected, when we're strongly connected with others and when we're strongly engaged with their well-being as well as our own. For any parent, for any family, for any others, be well aware if those that are close to you are very distressed or very unwell, you're not well yourself and you really only thrive. I mean, we've just been through the Christmas period, not sure how it went in Ireland and the UK and others, but, you know, not being able to connect with people, tremendously problematic. Mm. Here, as I was saying earlier on, I'm not really joking, but it's really serious to see people on the beach, to really connect with people, to feel part of a community in that local way, mm-hmm. be part of a family network. That's when you experience a sense of well-being. So attending to the mental health and well-being of the group is as important as understanding what is going on in yourself. And if you're not well, a lot of the solutions depends on other people actually assisting you to regain that well-being, not just getting lost in your own head. You know, and that's one of the difficulties in the mental health world is being open to the assistance of others when you're not struggling and actually being able to interact in ways. And, 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 you know, our willingness to reach out and connect. Now, I am fundamentally Irish by background, but I live with a lot of English people who actually <laughs> don't Sorry like to, to reach out and touch or interfere or somehow invade the interpersonal space. Mm. I blame this as an Anglo-Celtic thing more generally, actually. I'll include the Irish here. 
if you're Latin and you're Spanish or Italian, you know, and you're unwell, people are all over you, you know, and then when you're unwell, there are tears, and when you're well, there's celebration and there's expression and there's facial expression, you know, all of those things that communicate continuously the emotional temperature of what is going on, but in fact, are also linked to problem solving. You know, in fact, it's you know recognition that if we are unwell as social groups, now we are very lucky here in Australia that we have come to reside on the lands of our original Indigenous people, and I must say, I'm very grateful to the people, uh, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, in which I'm currently residing. They have a concept which translates poorly into English of social and emotional well-being. There is no individual well-being. There is only the social and emotional well-being of the group. And it's not a very physical well-being. It's actually the emotional well-being. It's actually the collective mental health. That's very interesting because they had to survive in incredibly harsh climates in very small groups and still they champion that, in fact, unless the group survives, they don't do well. They've actually done very well during the COVID era. Collectively, they, their intrinsic collectivism has actually stood them in good stead for the challenges that we now face in the physical environment. So I think there's an issue here that the global world, the collectivist, these collect commercialization of individualism internationally to sell, accompanied by, in, frankly, individual psychology, individual cognitive ideas, I get in control of my own head, I'll be resilient on my own, will win. Now, the commercialization is one. I'm glad you raised the issue with the Dalai Lama because, uh, of course, a lot of people who do pursue meditation and mindfulness and are trying to get their own internal world into equilibrium, I'm not saying they're intrinsically selfish. I mean, that is a thing one has to be aware of. One has to be aware of one's own perturbations, one's mm -hmm. own changes. Totally. But one, I would suggest one needs to be aware of the context in which that occurs and whether the action that is required is just more meditation or whether the action that is required is actually more activity, yeah. you know, real purpose in the wider world where that perturbation is actually occurring, you know, what it is that is causing that perturbation or how it is playing out for the individual who is affected. Totally. And you mentioned that idea of there is no personal mental health with the indigenous population. And I recently read um, read a quote from someone who was studying the indigenous population in uh, North America, and they came across with a very similar thing. And I believe the quote was, those who get ill are canaries in the mine. They are showing us that the society is sick. Their healing is our healing. It, isn't it just it doesn't it sound so true but yet it's just the exact opposite of what we're going through yes it's a fascinating idea i think if we take most of the first nations peoples around the world they had to survive in very harsh climates in very harsh physical conditions you know face really large challenges but it's fascinating that they had that so in a sense people who became unwell physically mentally socially were the assumption was that they were being affected by the physical environment in some way, some threat. Now, that could have been a viral infection like we're seeing now with the pandemic. Makes some people sick, but not others. So what sits behind that is a fascinating concept of individual differences, okay? We don't all get COVID. We don't all get sick when we get COVID. We don't all end up in intensive care, fortunately, 
We don't all die in areas. Individual variations in response to things are variable, and you don't know, you know. Some people like ex-President Trump think they're invulnerable. They get the virus and he survives, so what's wrong with the rest of you, <laughs> you know? Others, you know, it could be of all ages, are struck down and sadly die very quickly, not due to any fault of their own, not due to a weakness in their own, but because their own physiology, the intrinsic individual differences that we have are large. Now, humans need individual differences. The fact we're not all clones gives us a variety of different capabilities and responses, and that actually contributes to the survival of the social groups. If we're all clones, if we're all genetically identical, we'd all be dead, right? You know, we would have all been wiped out by whatever it is that particular genotype was sensitive to. So actually diversity, diversity actually leads to survival, very important concept, but it makes us differentially vulnerable to different kinds of stressors, some physical like virus infections, others psychological, emotional, in different kinds of ways. One of the things that I really find interesting about mental health is a constant portrayal or stigma that people with mental health problems are weak in some way. Yeah. Right? They're not strong. They're not resilient, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Actually, those people resilient, and Trump would be a good example, not fussed by anything, are some of the world's most insensitive and dangerous people, actually. Mm, <laughs> you know? absolutely. Sensitive people, you're the canaries you're alluding to, Sensitive people aren't required. In fact, if you think about child rearing, which is the most important thing in human survival, you need people who attend to children and are sensitive to their needs, care for them when they're sick, take care of them when they're vulnerable. Humans take, as we now recognise, about 25 years to develop into functional things, a really long time, okay? That requires a social group to actually take care. So environmental sensitivity, which is often seen as a weakness from a mental health point of view to be upset by the environment, is actually a strength of the group, okay, to be aware of the needs of others is actually intrinsic. Mm. So, you know, it's a really important kind of set of issues. So different kinds of perturbations in the external world, including in the emotional world, will affect some people more than others, depending on their own genotype, like their own intrinsic DNA, but also on their own sets of experiences. And really what that all determines is different emotional tone. So, you know, people who've never experienced a mental health problem pat themselves on the back and think, well, I'm a pretty strong sort of guy. I'm a resilient <laughs> kind of guy. Yeah. The corollary might be, actually, you're a pretty insensitive person, actually. <laughs> you know? And too many of you, we'd all be dead. You know, no one would take care of anyone. So, you know, um, it's, a, it's a mix and therefore a mix in the social group. So, you know, emotional sensitivity, emotional connection, a willingness, a genuine empathy, a genuine understanding of the distress of others in particular ways. I don't want to get too political. I'm very glad to see an Irishman, Joe Biden, now become president of the United States because I think there's some hope that the empathy of the Irish might actually expand, you know, a fundamental kind of emotional tone yes. might return to public policy in that country and affect the rest of us, you know, that as terrible thing the pandemic has been but you know you can only solve the problems through collective action well i'd say the same thing is true for the emotional world that we're living so the emotional world to function is a collectivist undertaking how we differentially each respond to changes in that world is tied up in our own identity determined by both our genetics but also by our own environmental experiences but we need the sensitive people right the goal of mental health is not to make people less sensitive. I mean, it's another part of my professional world, you know. It's not to make people bulletproof. It's not to turn them into 
Trump-like supporters of the world, right? It's to make them actually aware that the sensitivity, they are picking up things and they are affected by things in ways that others aren't. That's not a weakness, it's a difference. Mm. And that difference is is very important to the social group. This is really profound when you talk about this because... Often, I well, I, what I see you know, on social media and what I experience sometimes is that there's almost like a grouping, but of these sensitive people you talk about and of these insensitive people complaining about uh, each other. When really, if we could, if I understand you correctly, we need to appreciate that both of these groups are necessary for us to proceed. Yeah. So let's get back to about First Nations peoples and other sets of stuff, you know. Some people had to go out in the world and be prepared to do stuff that would scare the wits out of a lot of the rest of us, <laughs> okay? I'm basically a bit of a scaredy cat myself, you know? I'm not a person for jumping out of aeroplanes and, you know, hang gliding. <laughs> like, you know, I'm a bit fearful of other stuff or running through the bush and chasing after snakes and spiders. And then trust me, in Australia, we've got a lot of them all, you know, swimming across the bay. A marvellous thing the other day of a man who jumped into a pool in Australia <laughs> uh, because his girlfriend was being attacked by a shark. And he punched the shark in the head, right? He jumped into the pool and punched the shark in the head, right? <laughs> now, that's the sort of bloke you need in the world. <laughs> not very fearful, not very unwell. And I must say, I'm the father of four daughters. I thought, geez, he's not like me, but he might make a good son-in-law, that bloke. You know, you've got to have different levels of being able to contain fear, sensitivity, different levels of doing things. You know, so variations are important, you know, so some degrees of insensitivity or being less able. I mean, in my world, for example, as a doctor, I see surgeons and intensive care people and other sets of things who do things, physical things and have to do surgical, you know, which really require a tremendous capacity to put aside the effect on the other person right, what is actually happening, the pain, the suffering, the injury, you know, to actually achieve the outcome. So, you know, it's often said that a number of my surgical friends are a bit insensitive, right, <laughs> but I'm very grateful that actually <laughs> when I'm fast asleep, they do really good things for me, you know, and I'm very grateful <laughs> to wake up and they're not fussed about it, the blood and guts and gore and whatever, I couldn't care less, just a bit of carpentry together, all good, carry on, you know, so... Being able to transit, having this diversity of emotional tone and groups is very important and it has always been important to survival. Interestingly, at the extremes, of course, it's problematic. If you're so fearful or so sensitive you can't do anything or you're so insensitive that you put others at risk, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the majority of us lies somewhere in the middle mm-hmm. of those things. But in terms of diversity in the population, sure, you see particular sets of areas of difference. Thanks for that, Ian. That's, that's fantastic. Um, the next thing, uh, just to go back to what you were saying previously um, on the idea that we need to, you know, people who might be into meditation or some uh, these practices, contemplative practices, we also need to realize that there are times where uh, we need to focus on the collective rather than the the personal. And I was wondering, like, in your in your opinion, how can we balance the well being, the individual well being, with the collective? Because, like, even personally, I, I I recently like wrote a wrote an article on the on the importance of boundaries, 
and if if I am content when when well if I'm mostly content when my tribe is content, am I relying too heavily on external matters for like a, a personal a personal contentness satisfaction or have you have you found difficulty with this in your own life? Well, um, I suppose it depends where you got options. <laughs> I come from a large Irish Catholic family. I've got six children. I've got lots of relatives. I live in a very rich professional world. You know, the option that I could somehow exist, you know, in a state of wellness, if all of that was in perturbation and, you know, not happening, isn't realistic. Now, it does mean, however, however, it does mean we all need to think about, in terms of our activities, to what extent at times do we need, in a sense, time out, we need times to moderate our own internal world when it's getting very perturbed by those things, mm-hmm. okay? So if you are more sensitive to those things you're in, and you're a key part of that, the danger is that you can be perturbed a lot by a lot of things that are happening. So if you're one of the people, the canaries you alluded to earlier, you can be upset a lot and you may need to learn skills not to become less sensitive but to be less perturbed by all those things, to moderate some of those things mm. and how to take actions. And I suggest the actions are twofold. Some is by internal. For some people, mindfulness, meditation, internal times, time out works. For others, I often make the comment, often for a lot of men, it's actually doing things. It may actually be playing sport, going to the gym, other activities, you know, where actually they're doing something physical, but they are relaxing. And, you know, and for many others, it's essentially problem solving, not just reacting to the world, but taking actions to resolve problems. Humans humans are also much more mentally well when they're problem solving, rather than being just reacting to the particular kind of set of issues. To use a big example, again, I think you might see a change in American collective well-being when he has a president that's focused on solving the problem, getting the vaccine out, working yeah, together. Yeah. You know, they, they actually we're solving the problem. We're not pretending it isn't there or trying to make up the science to make it go away or presenting alternative facts or, you know, doing things that actually just increase people's mm. distress about the particular sort of situation. So even if you haven't solved a problem, if you're in the process individually or collectively of taking effect, you're taking actions towards it, you'll generally feel better. So in crises, when we react, when we get together, and often in many crises, communities, functional communities, do pull together, then actually, despite the fact the external world is going really badly, people feel quite good about that. They actually actually come together with common purpose to do that. So I, I think the issue is not to just be a cork in the ocean and be pushed around continuously by everything that is happening, but to be an active element. So even if you are one of the sensitive people that is more perturbed by what is happening, you need to have the skills, the cognitive, the behavioural, the emotional skills to actually moderate your own response to those issues and learn, really learn what works for you. So if mindfulness, meditation works for you, great, but just don't spend the whole day at it. You know, if actually activity works for you, if problem solving, if engaging works for you, you know, if drinking alcohol works for you, bad idea, right? But if actually physical exercise works for you, if sleeping better, you know. So I think one of the things many people need to find out, which they don't find out as teenagers, or is what works. And I'd make the simple comment that often when people are working as parts of groups effectively, they find that works much better than just 
retreating to their internal self, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. uh, and actually hoping that just uh, medita- medita- meditation, med- not just meditation, but, but retreating. But what some people do, and why I'm so critical of a lot of this individual stuff, is frankly it's just avoidant, right? It's yeah. actually just pulling back and hoping the problem won't be there tomorrow. And that makes the situation worse, right? Yeah. You know, the classic, like, I mean, you know, big challenges for young people at the moment in employment and education and can't travel. If you just say, oh, well, oh, I'll just have to wait till the pandemic's over and I'll just meditate till it's over, you know, that isn't going to help, really. You're going to, mm-hmm. you know, trying to find more productive ways to engage. And whether that's, you know, throwing your efforts into creative arts or into music or into collective, you know, doing other things to collectively and engaging and, and developing, you know, despite the fact that external circumstances have become very difficult. You know, what is it that you do in these situations? Um, so I think this is where uh, when I was younger, uh, psychological therapies used to be called cognitive and behavioural. And somewhere along the line in the late 1980s and 90s, the behavioural bit got a bit dropped in favour of the cognitive, just thinking about it. You, know? <laughs> you can't actually fix your own thoughts without doing stuff. And actually when you do stuff, you think differently. And it's interesting, I've just come back to work. A, a common story in medicine is you run into, and I ran into a few of them on, during our summer break here, you run into surgeons on the beach who suddenly become fearful about doing surgery. They're sort of anxious about whether they're a good surgeon or whatever else. They start to worry when they're not doing. And you ask them two days after they go back to the work, are they worried anymore? They go, no, that'd be ridiculous. I've been back at work. It's all fine. It's all fine. I'm back doing what I was doing. I don't worry about it. I don't even think about it anymore. I'm just back, you know, sewing things back together and hammering them back together and doing what I'm doing. We actually are far less anxious, many of us, when we're doing what we can do rather than when we're not doing and we're worrying about it in particular ways. So for many mental health problems with, with anxiety, with fearfulness, with, with and depression and other areas, the doing precedes the feeling better and thinking better about it, not the other way around. And I think a problem with a lot of the misunderstandings of a lot of cognitive approaches is I've got to get right in my head first before I do anything, mm. which results in never doing anything and being more lost in your own head. And you were to start with. That's interesting because he, also we had a guy on um, Christopher Boyce a few months ago, and he also he talked about what I what I believe what you're saying is true. He also talked about the idea that maybe people need to improve at the at the idea of just sitting and being with themselves and not constantly doing things and not really sure why they're doing things. So again, it's all about balance. Well, that's an interesting idea too. I mean, I, what I am is I'm, I'm putting an emphasis in here on activity, but not frenetic, purposeless, useless activity, not mm-hmm. running around, making noise and not being effective. Now, I don't get too political, but I will. Let's take the American president for the last year in the face <laughs> of the pandemic, saying yeah. stupid things and running around with frenetic things and having press conferences all the time and pretending it's okay, like lots of activity, lots of noise, lots of Fox News, lots of whatever else actually makes the situation worse, mm-hmm. okay? Frenetic activity, purposeless activity doesn't help. So a lot of the times people do need to stop and not be a cork in the ocean, not just be reacting to the next thing, you know, is actually go, hang on, hang on, not what is immediate but what is important. So the modern world and the modern technical world that we live in and all the devices that we have are all designed 
to immediately capture your attention continuously and have you respond before you've even thought what was my own name or what day of the week is it. You know, you're reacting to something in the online worlds that we have. They're attention grabbing. But this often results in useless frenetic activity. And of course, the danger is it disconnects you from the world actually around you in particular kinds of ways, potentially, when you know, particular things. So I think that's an important kind of concept of in the worlds that we're in. I certainly, a lot of my own research is in body clocks, is in actually uh, the 24 hour cycle, which includes, and very important, I say this to young people, going to sleep during mm. the dark period and being mm-hmm. physically active during the night period, the daylight, the sun period, and how we do that every day, the rhythms in which we do that, and how much purposeful activity did you do today as distinct from how much time did you spend in nothingness, (laughs) activity, Mm. but Mm. activity without meaning, activity without purpose. And I would say in this context we're talking, activity without well-being. You know, don't even know whether I did anything today. It made me or anyone else feel any better about the world. Yes, I was busy, but i got to say I was busy with nonsense, you know, in particular. And then that kind of stuff I think does. Then um, people have spent a lot of energy and a lot of time and they go at the end of it for what? You know, I just feel more aroused. I just feel more perturbed. I just feel now I can't sleep and, you know, I don't have, you know, so – Again, to come back to an earlier comment you made about a whole thing, you know, our physiology has a whole natural rhythm to it. I, I say this because I, uh, I used to travel to pre-2020 to Europe and the UK and North America because I really some work all the time. If you've ever been jet-lagged by travelling halfway around the world, which Australians are constantly, you know, <laughs> um, in our businesses, you'll be well aware that your body is out of sync with the actual natural rhythms of the day. It's very hard to function when you're out of sync. But it makes you very aware of body rhythms too. You can't think, you can't react, you can't eat, you can't sleep, unless the whole thing is in synchrony on an ongoing basis. We don't often think about that in our everyday lives, in our own environment. But what is it we need to do as we pass through the passage of a day, in being physically active, in being mentally active, in being socially engaged, that has a rhythm to it? And we are not machines. You cannot be emotionally on 24-7. You know, you can't operate to the same degree with the same degree of depth or tone. Or, so, so developing rhythm. So when people build things like meditation. Now, tell you, I, I, I may have mentioned to the Dalai Lama, I'm not a really great mindfulness guy myself. <laughs> I prefer to do things with people, play games, whatever. But I have been dragged over the summer period by my partner in life, who is English and an exercise, to yoga, to yoga three days a week, which i got to say, I physically, I don't, don't repeat this widely, okay, if you're listening, I physically hate it, okay, I hate it. <laughs> I'm an ageing man with bits that don't bend or stretch or whatever, you know, surrounded by all these other people who can bend and stretch and do stuff and whatever. But it's interesting because it's, uh, as it's been over my own summer break, whether I like it or not, it's been scheduled by the people in my life into significant numbers of mornings each week, which is mm-hmm. the right time to do it. It's the mm-hmm. right time of day to actually do that stuff as part of the way your hormonal system, your metabolic system adapts to the day to do it in a particular way to stretch and blah, 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 blah. And I have to confess, even though I don't want to, that as a consequence of that, 
I feel better. Not just mm. physically, because the physical bits all. In fact, I feel physically worse. Here's the here's the bottom line. I feel physically worse. It really hurts. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> but mentally, I feel better. Right? It requires a concentration on the physical. Other stuff out of your head. I can't even bend that way. I can't even imagine how those people do that sort of stuff. But you know, I'm concentrating on my own physiology. But interestingly, interestingly, here's the other point: doing it as a group, doing it as a group, not doing it as a personal thing. I'd never do it individually. I'm being dragged into it by the group I'm part of, and I don't ever do it as part of a group, right? So we're actually all collectively engaging mm. in something as a group, physiological, but it's also in the rhythm of the day, you know, a part of the particular thing. If you're really in mental health trouble, doing something physical every day, and when it might be something like yoga, but it might be exercise, getting into, trying to get the rhythm of life back, which is commonly lost in mental health problems, is just mm. as important part of getting right in your head as any other cognitive or emotional or medical intervention. You know, so there are aspects of us as humans that in the modern world we've put aside or we've disrupted at the social group level, but also in the fundamental rhythms of everyday life. Thanks for that, Ian. I, I, I was going to ask this towards the end, but now that you've brought this up and you're bringing up very uh, wholesome pieces of advice for people who may have, who may be experiencing some difficulty, are there any other like chief lessons that maybe you you learned uh, as a mental health commissioner, or are there is there anything else that you really try to embody in your life on a regular basis because you think it's so fundamental that maybe the listeners may not be aware of? Yeah, look in the public world that I've been in. Uh, but originally as the CEO of what's called Beyond Blue, our National Depression Awareness Campaign, which got going here in the early 2000s and then as a National Mental Health Commissioner, is the huge gap in understanding between what is known about many of these things and what many people think is commonsensical or worse, what has been marketed to them as what they should do. Right? Mm. And this is where the kind of problems of stigma and misunderstanding and lack of these actually arise from. So if you like, a lot of the science behind this, the social science, the neurobiology and, the, and many other things, which is very elaborate and, and, and goes ahead quickly, doesn't easily fit with a lot of um, common ideas. We mentioned some earlier, common ideas about weakness or that sensitivity is a bad thing or that resilience means you become bulletproof and insensitive to others in various ways or the importance of collective action for humans as social animals in particular sets of issues. And that well-being, probably the most fundamental, is that well-being is a physiological state. Right? It's not an airy-fairy thing that you can go purchase, you know, and put yeah. on. It's not a new set of clothes. You know, it can't be changed with the seed, like something down from the uh, – I'm not sure what the most uh, – I don't – bag too many brands here but whatever the you know whatever the brand of clothing in the in is most popular in your part of the world that changes its look and its color every six weeks so you'll buy a new one you know this is not the world of human well-being you know it isn't played out in very short-term processes and people so probably the most important thing i'd say is that and pick up a point about individual differences too is understanding this kind of thing about individually, you need to sort out what you need to attend to your mental health, <clears throat> excuse me, attend to your mental health and find out what works for you to keep you in balance. Because we can all be throwing, we all will be throwing, 
as a very famous uh, person once said, uh, life is tough and then you die, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, if you think you're going to go through life and not experience stress and difficulties, forget it. The physical world we live in is very challenging and then you die, right? Mm-hmm. It's going to be stressful. Stuff's going to happen. And because as humans we are very emotionally connected with others, stuff's going to happen to the people we care about around us too, and we're going to be affected by that whether we like it or not. So the fact that we get upset, the fact that we get distressed is entirely appropriate from an evolutionary and survival point of view to be distressed, right? But how you cope with it, you need to find out what works best for you and then within the groups that you're in, what works best for the people you care about, for the, for the small world networks that you're part of. So cherishing the small world networks, working at keeping those networks well is fundamental if you're a selfish person to keeping yourself well, okay, mm. I mean, actually, you know, and as well as what works for you. When I'm struggling, you know, when I'm uh, having difficulty with, let's say, not, not that the University of Sydney isn't a marvellous employer it is, but let's just say, Working in the areas in which I work can be a bit challenging from time to time. Let's say the health system. The mental health system continuously uh, is a challenge, that's what I'm putting it. Um, and it's rather difficult to get it to change and respond to the needs of people with mental health problems. You know, but no point me being upset all the time about that. How do I turn that into productive action in my role as a public advocate, in my role as an educator, as my role as a clinician? You know, what other things do I need to do? And I was just confessing to one, I don't, you know, I'm taking the opportunity here, Jim, of confessional, okay, just telling you, you know, I do hate physical activity, but I need it. <laughs> you know, so despite my, you know, objections and protestations and grumpiness when dragged into these activities in the early morning, because I'm not a morning person either, I've got to confess I need to do it. In fact, as I age... I need to do it more. You may not be aware, but your body clock, the thing in your head, you know, it's pretty much clapped out by the time you're 35. After that, you've actually got to work to schedules every day to keep you in those body rhythms I was talking about earlier on and physical activity matters. So whether I like it or not, I have to concede, and despite what I say, I have to do that stuff to stay well. Now, I know that, right? A lot of people who actually have mood problems know that even more. They know that if they do not get physically active, we, we see a fascinating thing here in Australia. I don't know if you've seen it as well with quarantine. People have had to go into hotel rooms for two weeks, you know, and yeah, suddenly yeah, find yeah. they get depressed, they're miserable, they can't cope at all because they were normal outside being physically active and doing things. They didn't realize the extent to which they used physical activity to moderate their own mood and their own capacity to cope every day yeah, in particular yeah, yeah. areas. You know, they only found out by being locked up for two weeks in a hotel room and not being able to do anything. Um, so, you know, finding out how to manage your own well-being and then collectively with a group that you're part of, what things actually really matter to you. And, and I might say in the context of a slightly different, another part of it I would make is also who. Historically, this may sound a bit controversial, but historically we put too much, far too much emphasis on family and kin, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Blood relatives. Mm-hmm. In the modern world, you know, people you work with, people in your local community, funny thing about the COVID world, which I think Australians have rediscovered because we value this collective things, this mateship ideas. Some of my favourite people run the local coffee shop 
run the local restaurant. I live in an apartment block. They're people I share an apartment block with. They're not blood relatives. As I said at one of my own daughter's weddings a few years ago, don't get family, get good friends. You know, you can rely on them. Family are trouble. Good friends are much better. You know, I'm going back. Who is it? Who is it that you can actually rely on and work with? And they're not, not through the responsibilities of simply being family or kin, but because you choose those relationships to support each other. In a mental health world, when you're struggling, having people who are really good friends, you know, you've chosen to form those social bonds. A lot of that's through the workplace these days and we don't rely so much on things we relied on in the past, you know, churches, sporting groups, community groups. A lot of it's work-related, it's other social things. They're really important. So I would say a number of those other things that people don't think about, really building those social bonds, not just with family and kin, but with others of like mind and similar, you know, values and sensitivity is tremendously important in these, you know, in these times. Um, and, uh, not to be all the same, not just necessarily with people who are exactly the same, but, you know, rich social networks that support us and challenge us and help us get through these periods. So what you see, in fact, I think, again, in the COVID era, the communities that are coping best have this strong social, not just saving my family or not just saving my people, but but the world in which I'm in, the functioning world in which I'm in, the city in which I'm in, the apartment block in which I'm in, the neighbourhood. And uh, a lot of social theory and a lot of issues about actually big cities that really work, they're actually not one big city. They're not surrounded suburbs. They're networks of small villages. Mm. Dublin, marvellous place, but the small village bits within Dublin that work. You know, New York is actually a series of boroughs and the boroughs themselves work. People walk and share they share the same things. They're not just locked up in their own castle in the great American suburb or the great Australian McMansion of a type thing with their own backyard and locked off. You'll die. You'll get depressed and then you'll die in there. Mm. You, know, you actually need to share the world, the physical mm. world. Go to cafes, to eat out, to be part of this, to be in parks, to, to you know, sporting groups, to do things together. Uh, maybe Irish pubs, but not too much of the uh, – you know, but, you know, the collective activity. You know, you see these people join choirs and they do other things. You know, like the doing collectively is tremendously important to well-being. In fact, many of the things that historically we did do, sing together, dance together, pray together, lunch together, celebrate together, they're a bit lost yeah. in the modern world mm-hmm. where we're all a bit more disconnected in the physical sense. Now, having said that, I think there are tremendous advantages two new technologies when they're used well, but I think some of those things that we did collectively really, really underpinned this concept that I'm driving at. It ain't just family. It isn't just blood relatives. It's the collective group. It's interesting, again, in the Indigenous world, uh, one of my favourite people in the world, an an older Indigenous woman uh, called Arnie Joy, who who lives as part of my family in in our collective sort of home. Um, she's called Aunty Joy because, as many older Indigenous women are in Australia, because she's an auntie to everyone. Now, when the English arrived, they couldn't understand this at all. How can you be an auntie to 55 people, you know, or someone refers to someone as being a sister? You know, think, uh-huh. They go, well, I don't know what you English mean. We don't mean the blood relatives. We mean the people we're responsible for. We mean all the particular people we take in. It's not a question of whether they're a blood relative or not. In fact, we're not entirely sure who is a blood relative or not of everybody else. 
because it's shared and the responsibility is shared. So the title of auntie is one of great social significance, you know, respect for somebody who plays a role in many people's lives, the mentoring of young people, taking kids who are in trouble, other things, not just family, not just direct kin in a particular way. Now, I think that kind of idea and, and for different people in society enacting those roles and who do you go to and who supports you. So one thing I'd say to people is, do you know who you would go to if you were really in trouble? And who would you go to to support if they were in trouble? Mm. I have quite a funny story with some other teenage friends. I, I, I'm the um, father of four. I'm a father of many children, I think. But I'm the father of four daughters. And as my four daughters say, you're a hopeless parent, Dad. You're hopeless. <laughs> but that's okay because we have lots of other aunts and uncles and others who are really good. But the fact that you're okay. hopeless is all right because we have a lot of others to choose from, you know, temperamentally and Interestingly, I have a uh, very close male friend and his teenage, now older daughter, his daughter calls me Auntie Ian. (laughs) (laughs) She thinks thinks I make quite a good aunt, but I'm quite practical about the problems that she actually has. And Mm -hmm. she thinks that I'm better than her dad. We are not blood relatives at, at kind of understanding some of the complexity of her life in a particular, at a critical stage in a particular thing, you know. So this notion of what's the wider social world that really cares about you? Who would care about you and who do you care for? Who can you play a productive role with? Because at various times in our lives, we're all going to need it and it's going to matter a lot to your mental health or well-being, just as when you're physically. You might ask the same question if you're physically sick who would you want to take care of you? Now, as my daughters say, no way are we ever taking care of you, Dad. You better hire good carers. You know, I say that's good because <laughs> when I get sick, I want good professional carers. I want people who do the job well, who are good at it, you know, not just anybody. You know, this and to think about that, think about that in a mental health way too, you know. Who would you be good for and who would be good for you? It's a really interesting thing. And do you, because if you don't have those people, now think about it this is crucial Ian, and, and what comes to mind even is the the closing of rural irish pubs which has really decimated like sections of the community because they they couldn't they don't meet the people in their community as, as they had before um but what i'd like to bring up now is how you believe that digital that facilitating digital mental uh, facilities facility for people can actually help these people that are isolated and that may that say that they are searching for a face-to-face connection but I've, I've heard you speak about the idea that actually the people who are isolated these digital mental health services can help them the most yeah, so you just said the key word. You said searching for face-to-face connection. I would say searching for connection, right? searching for connection. The assumption that connection has to be face-to-face is a very 19th century. Just remember when the Irish went all around the world, it was before you could actually ring on the telephone and phone home, right? There's a very mm-hmm. famous set of ads for the telephone company, the National Telephone Company in Australia in the 1970s, when we had really international telephones became affordable. 
And the big, the big um, ad was phone home. And it showed Irish relatives in Australia, Irish women in Australia, ringing Ireland and being in tears talking to their mum, right? It showed Italians ringing home to Sicily talking to their mum, whatever else, you know? The connection was still there. It showed faces crying and everyone going, you know, it was the connection. It wasn't face-to-face. It was just, it was just the telephone, a little old telephone. Imagine that in the internet age, a telephone, you know? Actually, the sound of a voice, the sound of connection, just knowing the connection was there in the world. So connection is fundamental to human well-being. Now, you said a very important thing as well. The world has changed. You know, rural pubs, uh, I'm not very big on Catholicism, but rural churches, my mum is. My mum's very big on Catholicism, you know. She used to say, look, Ian, I know you don't like those priests and all that other stuff, but we all used to go to church on Sundays and we would connect, right? Mm -hmm. The connection Mm -hmm. was there. It's the connection. As all those other social institutions disappeared, we now have a way of connecting with people world over. And this morning on my way to work, my partner in life is phoning her nephew in California to discuss the mental health, or the health care of her brother in Sheffield in the United Kingdom, right? They are all transacting stuff related to getting urgent health care for her brother in Sheffield via his son in California, via our medical knowledge generator in real time. They are incredibly connected. They're all distressed because he's unwell and it's complicated and they're all participating. And the best still, she's on the thing to the, you know, doctor who doesn't care in the NHS in the UK who's under a lot of pressure you know, to make the world happen. So technology has shrunk the world. You know, when my Irish grandfather came to Australia, he never saw, with his brother, he never saw his other five living brothers and sisters ever again. You know, in you know, never saw them again. Once you went to another part of the world, that was it. That mm-hmm. was the break in that sort of set of connection. Now, connection. So, despite the the breakdown in those very local networks you've alluded to, like the pubs and the churches and the and the and the local things, we now have a way of connecting in a different way, and also often with people we wouldn't have otherwise connected with. Now, a lot of people in those old worlds were also disconnected; they couldn't get to the pub. They had other sets of difficulties. They couldn't find people, you know, who had same-sex attractiveness or thought like them or behaved like them or had other disabilities. All sorts of people now can connect with people experiencing very similar things and can stay connected to people despite being physically distant. So the appropriate use of technologies, it picks up our general theme, I think, with Jim. My interest in many of these things is in social connection. My interest in technology isn't just that you do it yourself as an individual app for your depression or anxiety or your individual smartphone or whatever. In fact, uh, hilariously, if you see kids with smartphones, the idea that anyone owns a smartphone is a rather weird one. I'll just knock off yours and I'll own mine. You know, <laughs> like whatever else, you know. They're just collective things. They're just stuff to knock off. You, mm-hmm. you know, there's no individual identity. Um, it, it's interesting kind of So my enthusiasm for technology is connection. And disconnection, mm-hmm. particularly across areas, and also disco- and is connecting in the in, uh, health world, the clinical world I'm in, connecting with expertise. Australia, like Canada and many other places, is a long way. If you think it's a long way from Galway to Dublin, try, <laughs> you know, Sydney to Darwin or, you know, across <laughs> Australia in many particular areas. You know, uh, you know, most of the mental health professionals in Australia live in Sydney and Melbourne and then in the richer suburbs in those particular areas, providing mental health services, connection, I'm tied up in work in Colombia in South America. It's a fabulous work led by young Colombian psychiatrists there of using technology, 
you know, in, in developing countries and using others for services, for information, but connection. Just remember, Facebook was invented by young people to connect with each other in real time, to go out and do stuff, you know, <laughs> to message. And the advent of social, what you now call social media, which is really only from 2008 onwards, is all about connection. Now, so if used appropriately, I think it has a terrible... Now, just imagine this pandemic if we didn't have the technology we had. You know, within a month in Australia, all of our schools went over to being online. Schools would otherwise close down. Kids would not have seen each other. There would have been no education. Healthcare provision went over onto telehealth within a month, stuff we should have done 10 years ago, you know, because Mm -hmm. the technology exists. Mm -hmm. So in my view, when the technology is put to good use, it has a tremendous capability. Now, this is highly contestable at the moment. In fact, I've written elsewhere about the Uberization of digital mental health. Now, I'm not saying Uberization is good or bad. I'm just saying it's going to happen, right? You know, there's a private sector, there's other things here. I'm really interested in the extent to which when technology disrupts the worlds we're in, we might see a good outcome rather than not. And I think a lot of that will provide access, will provide information, will provide tools. But one of the critical aspects, I guess the theme of this this whole uh, discussion we're having is does it effectively promote social connection, hold people together in mm-hmm. meaningful ways, or mm-hmm. does it undermine in some way or other? However, just to challenge all of my favourite professionals, the face-to-face thing isn't mm-hmm. as important as we say. <laughs> and, you know, it's not all – people don't always want face-to-face. You know, I don't go back to Irish Catholicism, but the notion of the confessional, you know, the guy on the other side that you couldn't see who was sort of God or something, Right. You didn't want to see some old grumpy face giving you, you did what? You know, disapproving. <laughs> you want to be able to say, back in the 1980s, I was tied up in much more fun things like sex research, and mm-hmm. people would tell computers, old computer laptops, things you couldn't even imagine, all sorts of things about what they did that they would never tell a person because the person would disapprove. Mm-hmm. You know, if I see a young woman walk into my office with an eating disorder and she looks at me, an old fat guy, she goes, I'm not going to tell that guy what I'm really up to. She sees uh-huh. somebody else who looks like her or is, is she'll tell another young woman what she's up to. She'll tell a computer what she's up to. So the idea that people necessarily disclose to health professionals or that they don't necessarily, but people don't necessarily share their thoughts. We see this with suicidality. We see it with other things. So there's a disclosure issues. There's connection issues. And the face-to-face bit, I think, is about connection. It's not literally about face-to-face. It's about the emotional tone. Can I connect with something and with people who get what I'm on about and why my world is perturbed? And in my view, technology can greatly facilitate that. And we have a new opportunity to do that in particular ways and do that with people who would otherwise never have access to that kind of expertise and connection. You can stay connected around the world. You can be connected in your local pub, and I strongly recommend the local pub, but not too much <laughs> the local Guinness. In moderation. But, you know, marvellous thing, you know, not too much of it. <laughs> but, you know, um, staying connected. And, in fact, in, in the more challenging times that we're in, 
And when people go, so I've, I've been involved in, for example, modelling the mental health impacts of COVID. And there are two big things that make the mental health world worse in the COVID era. One's unemployment, financial difficulties. The other's social disconnection, being forced to disconnect. Well, the social disconnection, probably one of our biggest ways of dealing with that for the foreseeable future is through technology. Is doing exactly what we're doing now, having these conversations. Now, I would say within that, uh, video, it's, there, are tele, there are telecommunications infrastructure issues. Being able to see faces, being able to hear voices, being able to interact in real time, these are, you know, uh, undoubtedly important aspects of the things. But I do go back to the 1970s and the Australian Telephone Company, just the voice, just mm. knowing you can phone home and mum's still there, you know, mm. as always. In a particular, and whether she's in Sicily or she's in Dublin or she's in Seattle, it doesn't matter. You know, I have a I have a uh, son and a granddaughter in Montreal, in Quebec, who I talk okay. to regularly via you know FaceTime and whatever else. Right, mm-hmm. that kid. I mean, I've met my granddaughter, but unfortunately, haven't seen her for the last year. But she can get on a Zoom, on a FaceTime thing and go, ah, it's that funny old grandpa person down there. Makes her <laughs> laugh in a particular way. Not the not the same as rolling around the lounge room with her, but, you know, it is maintaining the connection during an otherwise time when we would otherwise be disconnected, you know, so that the mental representation. Technology, my whole discourse here is if technology is used appropriately and particularly in these times of crisis and connection, then we are able to connect with people. In fact, the world's oldest online suicide prevention program comes from Australia and it runs out through an organisation called Reach Out and it was set up in 1996. Imagine what the internet was like in 1996. Um, And a guy called Jack Heath, very sadly, his nephew had suicided in rural Australia at the time and Jack's pretty convinced that if someone had been able to reach out or his nephew had been able to reach out to someone in that dark period, his nephew would still be alive. You know, not being able to connect at that time of crisis, there was no way of connecting with someone who was in crisis in a particular way, you know, and that led him to establish this first internet-based suicide prevention to assist kids in tough times, you know. Mm. So I think the potential is there, but we've got to be smart about how it is best used. And we're all on a learning journey, you know. There's a lot of upsides and downsides to modern technology. But I remain an enthusiast or an optimist. In my fundamental Irishness, Jim, I remain a fundamental optimist that all being well, all being well, technology will probably be a good thing. (laughs) I and for 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 listeners and for myself who maybe just want a clear picture of how I heard you mention that digital platforms can actually improve the idea of personalised care. Would you have an example to, to, to give to us about how the digitalization of mental health care has really helped provide a personalized uh, care package or care help to, say, someone in rural Australia or someone PTSD or someone with suicidal thoughts? Yes, let's take all of those. You got another hour, Jim? Yes, <laughs> we can cover all of those. I don't know if you've ever been to a clinic 
they're a doctor or whatever. You know, the doctor, I don't know how it works in the kind of Irish system, but, you know, the doctor might have five minutes, the psychologist might have ten. Now, what's the problem? Now, let's keep it short, okay? Let's not get too late. No, 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 I ain't going to deal with the problem. Now, no, let's keep it focused, okay? Are you suicidal today or not? You know, what's the problem today or not? What are we going to solve today? Hang on, hang on. My life's more complicated than that, you know? Mm. Oh, no, 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 no. We don't, we gotta, whatever it is, we've got to limit the period. Now, one of the great things about online technologies is if you use them appropriately, then people who have a story to tell and they want you to understand the richness. So in the world I'm in, you can use technologies for what we call multidimensional and highly personalized assessment. You can actually use those things before you get to the clinic to describe who you are, the symptoms you've got, the relationships you're in, the needs that you've got, financial, personal, social, mental health, physical health. You can collect all that data beforehand and not be edited out by the clinician to only being this bit or that bit. No, 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 I don't want to hear about your drug and alcohol problem. No, I don't want to hear about your suicidality. I don't want to hear about your sleep today or all this. Mm. You know, you can actually put it in there. You can also prioritise that. Suicidality is a fascinating thing because, for example, you know, obviously in mental health world where are you suicidal today or not? Because if you are, we've got to do something. If you're not, we can wait till tomorrow type idea. We have yeah, run it. Yeah, yeah. Now, mm-hmm. sometimes in these situations, that is the most important thing to deal with today. For others, not so comp- – not so, so. for example – we have a, a, use this issue and issue with war veterans and a lot of people with PTSD who have suicidal thinking a lot all the time, you know, and they don't want to be asked every day, are they suicidal or not? In fact, it's not, they know it's there. It's not the thing that's worrying them the most. The thing that's worrying them the most is their wife's about to leave or they've lost mm-hmm. their job or they're about to lose their home. You know, there's some other factor that's worrying them the most in a particular way. So technologies allow people to say what is the biggest priority to them. They allow the whole picture to be there. They allow the person's needs to precede the allocation of resources to help that. So I was discussing just yesterday with some of the new issues running in some of the new clinics we have. You might, for example, turn up and you might be depressed and have a mental health need, but you might also have a really serious financial problem and your relationship, your wife might be about to leave, right? You might have three or four things. You might actually need three or four different professionals. You might need uh, financial needs, you might need welfare needs, you might need relationships, and you may need treatment for your depression. You may need a team of people. So we, therefore, provide the services that you need, not just what our shop does. <laughs> you know, oh, I'm sorry, we only do this. Drug, oh, drug and alcohol, we don't do drug and alcohol. We don't do relationship counselling. We don't do financial support. You know, like you'll have to go off down the road to six other agencies or not and sort that out yourself, you know in the middle of the crisis you're in. So this multidimensional assessment, getting the information in, and then that actually being tracked over time. I say to people all the time, funny thing to say, I don't care how you get well. I care if you stay unwell or you get worse. So I want to track over time against the things that you've said were important. Did we actually improve them or not? And if they're not getting better or you've suddenly got suicide, I want someone to do something about it. I want the system to recognise that whatever it recommended. I give people a lot of advice about sleep-wake cycles and activity and do stuff, and I send them off with their mobile phones to track it, right? And they come back to me four weeks or six weeks later with, I'm showing you know, you know a picture of their whole sleep-wake cycle and go, that's very good, Dr Hickey, but what you said didn't work. And here's my actual sleep-wake cycle, right? Mm-hmm. Not what you said in general. Here is my sleep-wake cycle, my personal activity pattern. Now, if they did what I said and it didn't work, I've got to recommend something different. However, 
if they didn't do what I said, that's also obvious too. <laughs> well, yeah, 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 I suggested yeah. you get out of bed in the morning. Got out of bed in the morning, you know. I said you got to, you know. So this working with in partnership, working with real personal data over time at the assessment end, and then seeing it through. When you're suicide, the suicidality thing is fascinating because lots of people are suicidal, and the clinicians go, "No, they're not." They go, "Yes, they are." Go, and in fact, they're quite often suicidal when you're not seeing them, but you're not doing anything about it because you don't know it. There's no signaling system. There's no red flag. There's no warning sign, kind of. So we mm-hmm. miss the opportunity to assist. People, when they go to the doctor and they go to the clinic or they go to the psychologist, they tend to put a good face on it. They tend to behave, you know, pretty well. Oh, yeah, I'm a bit better. Oh, yeah, I'm doing the best I can. Oh, yeah, I'm grateful, even if you're only here for 30 minutes or the next six months, you know, whatever. You know, they kind of be nice to their doctors. They're nice to their psychologists. They're nice to the nurses. But actually, they're struggling a lot of the time. You know, they really didn't do it. And you can see that. You know, so the clinician can go, oh, my God, you know, actually, this person's really struggling quite a lot, you know, and at different times and in different situations. So what actually emerges is a much more personal trace, a personal record of what's really going on and on more than one dimension at one time. We can walk and chew gum. You know, we can do more than one thing. (laughs) You know, a doctor working in partnership with a psychologist and a social worker and a welfare agency and an employment agency in Headspace, our youth agencies, you know, now significant proportion have employment support or education support. You know, lots of the kids I see say, look, yeah, I don't want to be so fearful, but to tell you the truth, I really want to get back to school. I really want to go out with people. I really want to have a relationship. You know, i got to be back functioning, not just having my depressive symptoms or my anxiety symptoms go up or down. You know, there's a lot of other things to be done. A lot of people with mental health problems have concurrent physical health problems, certainly have concurrent alcohol or drug problems that need to be dealt with, to use your term, holistically, together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we have a notion here of right care, first time, and preferably where you live. <laughs> you know, you preferably had, shouldn't have to travel the length of Ireland. You shouldn't have to all go to Dublin to get well, you know, get anything in a particular uh-huh. thing. It should be able to be delivered. My family comes, I hate to say this, from a very small parish on the West Coast. <laughs> You know, and having been there a few years ago, coast of Ireland, you know, it must have been, and it's time, a very long way from Dublin. You know, like, you know, and these days, if you're struggling, you're a kid who's struggling on the west coast of Ireland in a particular way. You know, you need help today. You know, you don't need mm-hmm. a clinic appointment in eight weeks' time somewhere, and then you wait another where, and then you're probably not going to get what you want anyway, and you're probably going to see some old bloke like me who's not really that interested in what's affecting you anyway you know, mm-hmm. or wants to tell you how tough life was when I was young. You know, you want mm-hmm. something that responds, that understands, tracks, and then, you know, actually sorts out in real time, is this what works for you? You know, mm-hmm. what kind of psychological therapy, what sort of medicine, what sort of employment support, what sort of educational assistance works for you? So, you know, I think this is what the technology world actually offers. It actually is personalised. I mean, what it, what we all know about the digital world and what's so different to healthcare. You play with your own phone. You play with your own bank account, your own travel account, your own Instagram. You're playing with your own world. You know, you are an active voice in that thing. You're creating the content in that thing. When you go to a healthcare clinic, you sit there and wait to be asked. Mm. And then you give responses only to the questions you're asked. And you only get what that shop's cooking. You know, yeah. sorry, we do cognitive therapy. Sorry, 
we prescribe medicines. Sorry, we do alcohol abstinence. Sorry, we only do employment support. You don't only get what they do, and depending on how many different shops you go to, whether you can be bothered or whether they're even close, whether you can even get there, whether you can even travel there, whether they're even there. So in a lot of rural Australia, regional Australia, there is only one shop if you're lucky, you know, yeah. a doctor's yeah. family practice or a one non-government agency, and that's all there is. I mean, forget yeah. choice, you know. You've got to be grateful for the bit that's on offer. The internet, the internet world offers the world of those things. You know, you could potentially be getting help from North America or Canada or South America or somewhere else from Australia, you know. You could be getting help from anywhere. You don't have to get it from the locals. You may not like the locals. <laughs> the locals tend to be very good people, but there's a limit to what they can do, okay? Yeah. There's a world of expertise out there that might actually understand your problem a good deal better than whatever professionals open to shop down the road from you. It, yeah. Uh, when you speak it like this, it really, it really does fill me, fill me with optimism. And uh, I really appreciate your time. It's been phenomenal. Just to end, I'd love to ask how you see this uh, digital platform, digital mental health service developing. And I'd love just to kind of know your mental health utopia for the next, say, 15, 20 years. Well, I think in a really good way, digital mental health. Well, the optimistic view, okay? The Irish view here is the optimistic view. is that the intrinsic power of technology will be taken up by good people and will be very effectively deployed, okay? And I must say, I've seen examples of this of young. um, One should be optimistic about the young. One should be rather reserved about the elderly, you know? I think young people will take up the tools that they've grown up with and use them very productively. And I see this in really disadvantaged countries in South America and in Africa and degree in India, young people picking up the tools and go, you know what, I know what to do with this. This tool is so powerful. I can use this in the way that my community, that people actually need. And it will support connections. It will support healthcare. It's very, in a sense, uh, democratic. It's very independent. It's not very easily controlled by governments and power elites. You know, it actually is very disruptive to a lot of the traditional things that have oppressed people or excluded people from healthcare or from thriving socially. So the optimistic view is that technology will be the most fabulous enabler in mental health. In fact, in that sense, I think technology is by far the best thing that's happened ever in my lifetime in mental health because it will bottom up actually provide capability in a way that top-down systems, I hate if it's not already clear, top-down NHS-style systems where people plan the world for you. The great old Mm. Stalinist, we plan for you one big health system, and guess what? It doesn't meet your needs. It doesn't meet (laughs) your needs in the UK or Australia or Canada or anywhere else. It doesn't work. It never worked for mental health, and it never will. You can't plan for everybody. You can't say that, and you all just get the average rather than what you need or the Mm -hmm. best we can do. These are Mm -hmm. bottom-up and disruptive. So the optimistic view, I think, is that technology will transform and deliver very quickly as it has disrupted many, many other industries in this area because it'll be a tool in the hands of young people and it is not constrained by national boundaries and others. You know, governments can't really stop it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now that's, so the optimistic view is that, that would be very good. The um, slightly more pessimistic view, you know, the northern English view, the slightly more, <laughs> ooh, it's another rainy day is, ooh, be a bit dour about it, a bit Yorkshire about it, ooh, I don't know that this will go well. 
you know, and a slightly European view, we better regulate the hell out of it to stop it going badly. You know, we better tie it up in regulation because it's so threatening, you know, is that uh, there's a Wild West element to it and that it could, you know, go badly. And that in a sense, the behaviour of the large American tech companies, you know, has generally been don't regulate us, let we do what we like, you know, um, minimal respect for privacy and other sets of issues, you know, that it could go wrong and that will lead to a backlash in kind of things. I think the truth is we're trying to find the balance of these things at the moment. So my view is a fundamentally optimistic one because I think that's my natural disposition, which I which I attribute to the part of the Irish family that decided to get on a boat and move to a sunnier climate, you know, <laughs> well, actually... Like many of the Irish, it was poverty that forced them to go, actually. Yes. <laughs> you know, but uh, the idea that it must be better somewhere else, you know, there must be more opportunity. No point sitting here whinging about it. Better go do something about it. You know, so I think uh, my view is an optimistic one. But I, but at another level, I think we all need to be active participants in that dialogue. You know, I, at another level, I'm a bit more pragmatic about that. It won't necessarily go well just by watching it. You know, mm-hmm. I think we need to be engaged. All of us need to be engaged about can we find the best ways? And I must say in another way, the most equitable ways that these things get to the world that most needs them. They're not just simply owned and controlled by those who are already most privileged. That's wonderful. Um, uh, th- thanks so much for this conversation. I think so many people will like deeply appreciate it because we, we said before that uh, Unfortunately, the idea of a, a collective well-being is a little countercultural, but I think people will really appreciate this, and you'll force people or maybe uh, encourage people to to question whether or not was was it face to face connection or was it just connection, and and is my family member uh, someone that I can rely on, or is it really my friend or my friend's brother? Um, t- honestly, uh, thanks a million for this, Ian. I really appreciate it. Your community, um, think about. I think that's one of the things, Jim, people really, really should dwell on. What is the really strong intrinsic value of the community in which I live? Just, just to give you a final example, during the COVID period, um, I was largely out of Sydney in, in this um, uh, beach house commu- beach community in which I otherwise spend my sort of other life. And, mm-hmm. you know, interestingly, all the people in that community are not necessarily family right, because they all come from everywhere else. But actually, they spent quite a long time all coming to understand that they're part of the same physical place, a really beautiful part of the country physically, but also working on the connection within that with each other, Mm -hmm. you know, by choice, by active choice, not by obligation, not by inherited responsibility, but by choice in the particular area. And from a mental health point of view, they are some of the strongest kind of elements that underpin our collective well-being. In a term, I've been very rude about the English, so I'm going to say something nice about the English to finish, where in the 2008 they really popularised the idea of the mental wealth, not the mental health, but the mental wealth of a nation out of a series of the Office of UK Science. And the mental wealth of a nation is a composite of the mental wealth of smaller communities. Okay, so you want to see in economic terms or the mental health and well-being. It is does the small world networks that we are part of 
We're not really part of a global network. We're part of small world networks, not limited anymore by just where we are, enhanced by connection. Do they function? And within that, that diversity we talked about is fine to be sensitive, it's fine to be well, but to know that it's functioning and when it's functioning well, the chances that we are well are much increased, you know, and at times when we're not doing so well ourselves, we need those communities and we need to contribute to those communities for our own well-being and for the well-being of others. Totally. Yeah. Uh, uh, Yeah. I I couldn't agree more. Um, Thanks so much. I I really appreciate you giving us your time in. I think this podcast will be very important for a lot of people. And uh, I hope you continue to do the the great work you're doing and and work on that beautiful tan. Yes. (laughs) Unfortunately, those of us with Celtic skin shouldn't get too much sun. No, you're right. You're right. I was in Sydney for six months, and about about twenty five minutes of sun per day was was good for me because otherwise it just it got dangerously close to red over over brown. But uh, thanks, thanks so much, Ian. Um, I really appreciate it, and uh, best of luck in the future. Thanks so much, Jim. Hi, guys. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave a five star review if you haven't already. Every review helps us climb the podcast charts so that even more of you can listen to our amazing guests. We really appreciate the support. Remember to tune in next week. But until then, keep safe and have a good one.